This is Guns and Butter. Eccles during the 1930s said when you're in a depression, wages are falling, when you've got mass long-term unemployment, upside-down consumers, the same conditions in the 1930s. When you got that going on, Eccles said monetary policy is like pushing on a string. You can push interest rates down to zero, but you can't make people borrow. And the only thing to get out of that kind of a depression, according to Eccles, was fiscal policy, was the government having jobs programs and putting people to work. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Scott Paul and Tim Canova. Today's show, the Bay Bridge retrofit and the Federal Reserve. These presentations were part of the Public Banking 2013 Funding the New Economy Conference produced by the Public Banking Institute. We begin with Scott Paul, who is president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing, a partnership of some of America's leading manufacturers and the United Steelworkers Union. Mr. Paul worked on the legislative staff of the AFL-CIO and served on Capitol Hill at various times from 1987 to 2001. Scott Paul. I have to say, after these incredibly soaring aspirational talks, that's a world I want to live in. Uh, I'm going to give much more of a nuts and bolts presentation. Please pardon the pun. Yeah. How many of you uh, drove over the Bay Bridge to get here, by the way? Anybody? Yeah, a, a few folks. So I picked that because it's, you know, it's local, it's iconic, and uh, it has been in the news, certainly. Um, but one of the things, and Mark alluded to this, is the, the way in which we finance our infrastructure uh, is critically important, and it's important not only uh, because of the issues surrounding public or private financing, but also sustainability, uh, job creation, uh, taxpayer control or local control over some of these projects, and also their ultimate aim. Is it to produce a return for the private investor, or is it to uh, enhance the common good? And I think we have a, uh, a good prime case study in, in the form of the Bay Bridge to... Uh, to get started. So uh, just so people know exactly what I'm talking about in the, in the unlikely event you don't know what the Bay Bridge is, uh, it is a large structure, actually two structures, between Oakland and San Francisco. And since 1989, it has been in desperate need of reconstruction. The earthquake had a profound impact on it and, uh, and revealed some structural vulnerabilities. So uh, there's been an attempt to try to rebuild this since 1989. There have rightfully been concerns about design, about the environment, uh, about financing, a, a, a lot of things. Um, but what we ended up with was uh, perhaps one of the, the, the worst of all worlds, uh, and, and this is the, the, the lesson that, that Mark is alluding to. It's scheduled to open, perhaps, uh, on or about Labor Day. Um, and this is a project that's been planned since 1989, and as many of you know, has been un- under construction uh, at, at least for nine years or so. Um, Okay, so let's look at the cost of this. It is uh, $7.2 billion, which is an extraordinary expenditure. And the, the key piece of this is that 
generally speaking, there's a, there's a lot of federal uh, investment available for infrastructure. Uh, Governor Schwarzenegger decided to forego uh, that federal financing to avoid what are called Buy America laws. And Buy America laws have been around since the time of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Uh, and the idea was pretty simple. As we're rebuilding our country, especially in a time of, uh, of high unemployment, uh, that we should reinvest and, and source as many of the materials uh, and the work uh, in the United States to have that kind of virtuous cycling throughout the economy. Uh, uh, we built the interstate highway system with Buy America laws. Uh, believe it or not, Ronald Reagan actually signed a bill that expanded them to transit projects in the 1980s. Even a broken clock is right twice a day, I guess. And uh, and so they've had you know they've had bipartisan support. But Governor Schwarzenegger wanted wanted desperately to do a deal uh, with with the Chinese. And so he said, I'm not going to for a major part of this bridge. Uh, I'm going to not take uh, federal financing for it. And uh, the contractor that uh, Caltrans selected uh, chose Shanghai Zhenhua Heavy Industries, uh, which builds cranes at, at ports, many of which you, you may see, but it has built absolutely no bridges, zero bridges, not, not a single bridge. But it uh, came in with a bid that said that the, the bridge would be done uh, by 2011, and it would cost about $400 million less than any U.S. company could do it for. This was the claim, of course. So, what has happened? Now, uh, we're in 2013, and we have uh, cost overruns on the bridge uh, of over $300 million, approaching $400 million. Uh, It's at least a year behind schedule. And the great irony of this is that had the Schwarzenegger uh, administration accepted federal funding, which would have re- reduced the impact on borrowing costs uh, for California. The American contractor could have done it for that cost. Uh, it would have been done on time, and there would have been 2,500 uh, new union manufacturing jobs on the West Coast fabricating metal. Uh, as it happens, you know, none of that occurred. And what ended up happening is sort of uh, this, this outsourcing uh, run amok, I think, is the best way to describe it. And for, more, for, for a, a longer treatment of all of this, I've listed three resources up here from uh, New York Times, ABC News, and, uh, and CNBC uh, about what happened. And one of, the, one of the other consequences of the Schwarzenegger decision on this is that uh, – California has uh, very good uh, environmental regulations. In fact, I wish the rest of the country could catch up to California uh, in in a lot of ways. It's been a pioneer in all of this. This decision meant that the steel being produced uh, would have produced at least three to four times the carbon output because it was done in China where there lacks pollution controls, uh, uh, 20 to 25 times the particulate matter. Uh, a lot of reach actually reaches the West Coast. One of the largest single sources of particulate matter in California is uh, Chinese industry, actually, uh, believe it or not, 25 percent to 30% of particulate matter in, in uh, California comes from China. So, so through this decision actually is, you know, is essentially uh, bypassing the, the state's environmental regulations. And again, the result is, is certainly not a good deal for taxpayers. Uh, increased borrowing costs for California, the cost of at least 2,500 good 
middle-income jobs in the United States, uh, delays and what have you, and in fact, you know, has spawned a competitor that has no cost of capital. And this is, I guess, the great irony for this conference is that uh, the, the the Chinese company is a is a state-owned industry and it has zero cost of capital uh, that, that's competing with private sector firms here, uh, and is now competing on other projects and just won another privately financed project to uh, to put, to partially rebuild the Verrazano Narrows Bridge in New York. Yes, yeah, believe it or not. So um, now, now the reason why this is so important is that this is a microcosm of something that's about to happen. Uh, if you look at recent expenditures for uh, total public construction spending, so this includes bridges, roads, but also things like public schools and, and waterworks, uh, you see that it was actually uh, going up uh, through the Great Recession, dipped down, came up a little bit with the Recovery Act, uh, and is now headed virtually straight downhill thanks to all these austerity measures that are taking place. And there's no reason to expect that you're going to see that bump back up based on the inability of this Congress uh, and the President to uh, align their interests on, on, on more public investment uh, in rebuilding our nation. And obviously, I hope I don't have to tell you how clear the need for this is, that we need a, you know, we need a smart energy transmission grid, we need uh, renewable energy uh, investment, uh, we have 70,000 bridges which are in, uh, you know, in, in very bad shape, in need of repair, uh, and that number is growing every day. So we have sewer systems that are now over 100 years old that, that need repair, so the, the, the needs are enormous, uh, and the investment in this from the public side uh, has, been, has been going down. And if you look at a report from the American Society for Civil Engineers, you look at the levels necessary to just sustain what we have right now, the funding that we have right now, it's $91 billion per year, to, to maintain the existing quality of our infrastructure, which they rate as a D plus, uh, which, which is a, a gentleman's D plus, but, but a, G, a, a, a D plus $101 billion to improve our infrastructure to actually have uh, more safe bridges, uh, a better uh, clean energy uh, infrastructure. It would take $170 billion to do that a year. Uh, and you see the direction that, that the, the financing is headed from Washington, D.C. Uh, it is headed down. Um, and so uh, at the same time, uh, we have some other types of challenges as well, which is you have governors uh, looking very creatively to try to skirt around uh, these these uh, federal requirements. Uh, Buy America laws are one example. Uh, Davis-Bacon or prevailing wage laws uh, are, are another example designed to make sure that, that the construction work uh, is good work, uh, pay, paying good family-supporting wages, uh, or also uh, laws governing the types of contractors that can apply for this work uh, and excluding contractors who have uh, labor and environmental uh, violations, for instance. But uh, but this is this is something that both these public-private partnerships uh, and 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 states are trying to do by by shrinking uh, the, the federal pie, perhaps, but at the same time taking advantage of uh, private financing opportunities uh, that are available to them. Uh, I I am here to say that d despite all the dysfunction in Washington D.C., uh, th there have been 
small baby steps in progress. Uh, for instance, uh, one of the miraculous things that happened in the part of the, the very small infrastructure bill that passed in Congress last year is that it closed the loophole that Governor Schwarzenegger used to actually segment the Bay Bridge project and allow part of it to be outsourced to China. So that's one small thing that actually got done. Um, uh, we also have more states uh, that are passing these uh, domestic content and other types of standards. Uh, we saw Governor O'Malley just signed a bill into law uh, in, in, uh, uh, in Maryland. Uh, we saw uh, Governor Hickenlooper uh, sign something into law in Colorado. Uh, in California, uh, Governor Brown signed a bill uh, with regard to transit uh, to say that uh, transit systems like BART that are making new capital, uh, that are investing in new capital stock uh, or rail uh, have to, you know, have to up, up, you know, one, one of the uh, primary factors has to be the sourcing of, of the materials uh, as well to try to reinvest some of that uh, in the state. Um, but there are countervailing forces to this, and the, the uh, public-private partnership uh, projects are, are a very good uh, example of this. We tried to work uh, with, uh, with Rahm Emanuel uh, in Chicago, for instance, who has a, a PPP. Yes, well-deserved hisses. Um, and uh, battled him for a very long time, sometimes successfully, sometimes not so successfully. But, but he has uh, you know, a, a Rebuilding Chicago program that involves uh, some public money, but, but also a mix of private investment. Uh, we, we work very hard uh, with uh, Mayor Emanuel to try to uh, get a domestic content preference uh, in there, and, and he refused to do it, uh, other than a very kind of token, modest thing that would have virtually no application uh, at all. Uh, but unfortunately, you see mayors around the country that are trying to emulate Rahm Emanuel uh, and who are going down this path. So one of the things that we're trying to do is work with union pension funds, uh, which tend to invest in these infrastructure, to say a condition of your investment in this should be not only that these uh, are good jobs at good wages, but that these materials are sourced domestically and sustainably uh, as well to promote recirculation of that uh, investment within the economy. And the other challenge that we see, uh, and again is this, uh, you see more uh, state-owned firms in China trying to do uh, private investment directly in the United States, and again, wanting to bring over their, their own, uh, not only their, to use American know-how, but uh, uh, zero cost of capital, uh, but to, to bring materials over from China as well, which may be displacing job opportunities in the United States. And uh, my criticism is not necessarily of the Chinese government, although I have a lot of bones to pick with the Chinese government, but it's like, why aren't we insisting on reciprocity here? Why aren't we making smart investments and in, in, uh, fighting for these types of jobs uh, and, and this type of investment in our own economy? Uh, and that's sort of the, the, the baffling question, is that you have this huge need uh, and, and you have, you have a, a Congress and a president uh, who are looking at the mostly at the wrong answers, and you certainly have mayors and governors who are mostly looking at the wrong answers as well. Uh, but this is an issue, uh, as uh, I think uh, Rabbi Lerner said, that fundamentalists uh, should be for the Jubilee. The, uh, this is an issue that, uh, that we find there's a lot of support among conservative Republicans. They don't like to spend money at all. Uh, they certainly don't like to see it spent in China. And uh, so we've turned some of them around, uh, but certainly not enough because the, the private financiers, the outsourcers, have way too much control over our economic policy. Um, so 
uh, just a simple economic word about why this issue matters uh, in the manufacturing community. A good report done by UMass Perry showed that when you have these sort of domestic content requirements that you can enforce, uh, you will create 33% more manufacturing jobs per, per dollar of federal investment. And, and that, this is why FDR did this in the, in the, in the first place, uh, is, is that you get that recirculation of the money in the economy that, uh, that ends up benefiting everybody. Um, and I, I do want to touch on something that uh, I know Richard mentioned, uh, because this is more broadly for you kind of a primer of why the manufacturing community is certainly interested in public banking. It's because we've been screwed by private banking, and, and we've been screwed hard by private banking uh, and, and by policies. And, and let me just give you a, a illustrate beyond the infrastructure project that I just mentioned in the Bay Bridge, some ways in which that has happened. Uh, it used to be that, that manufacturers could count on uh, getting capital, uh, and manufacturing is a very capital-intensive industry. It takes, it takes a lot to invest in plant and equipment uh, and sometimes to, to, to cover your, your payroll when you're waiting to be paid you know, up the supply chain uh, or by your customers. That's, that's the way it goes. And for years, it could generally count on some, some reasonable capitalization from Wall Street, but Glass-Steagall completely shifted the balance of power. Um, and it made Wall Street the masters of manufacturing. Uh, and the result uh, was a decade of uh, unprecedented outsourcing and downsizing. We lost a third of manufacturing employment last decade after Glass-Steagall passed. Uh, we saw 55,000 factories shut down. We saw output actually decrease in, in most industrial sectors despite increases in, in productivity. Uh, we also see, you know, obviously, Wall Street uh, and private banks obsessed with short-termism and, and short-term gains. And in, in a sector of the economy that takes patient capital uh, to survive, uh, those are fundamentally at odds. Um, uh, I, give, I have to give credit to, to one of our companies, which is a global company, and believe me, I don't agree with everything they do, uh, but I think this is, this is noteworthy, ArcelorMittal, world's largest steel producer and, and has, has a big footprint in the United States. Uh, it has stopped issuing uh, quarterly, uh, quarterly earnings advisories. It just stopped. It says uh, it doesn't serve our purposes at all. We will do it, but we will do it once a year. And that's the most we'll do, and we don't even want to do it once a year because it finds that uh, it, it is uh, it, it has a hard time in the capital markets uh, with the with the quarterly earnings. And uh, the other challenge is access to finance for small and mid-sized firms. Um, and we saw this uh, well after the Great Recession, uh, and this is something actually that the Fed, the Treasury, the Atlanta Fed, uh, SBA picked up, but that there, were, there was just an unwillingness to invest in American manufacturing. Uh, the federal government had to provide $5 billion in loan guarantees to auto parts companies in the United States. I mean, you obviously know what happened with, uh, with Chrysler and GM. Uh, but the auto, uh, the, the auto parts sector, which employs a lot more people, couldn't get financing from anywhere. Uh, and so the federal government had to step in uh, and provide uh, loan guarantees to these companies. So this, this entire sector uh, basically wouldn't go bankrupt. But that is what you call a market failure. Uh, I mean, you could, you could say from their perspective, this is how it's designed to be because we're, we're maximizing our, our, our returns. But from the productive sector economy uh, perspective, this was a, a terrible uh, market failure. Um, and so I wanted to, I guess, leave you with that uh, food for thought is that I think one thing that would make our country 
uh, a better place uh, in the absence of these uh, aspirational goals that I think Richard and uh, Rabbi Lerner outlined, and, and that's the place I want to live in. Uh, but for now, uh, if, if we're going to start with something, uh, let's ensure that the financial sector uh, percentage of GDP is on the wane and the sectors of the economy that actually generate uh, middle-class incomes and, and return money to the community uh, are, are rising. Uh, and, and we've had exactly the opposite of that, uh, where, where manufacturing has shrunk uh, to about uh, 11 or 12 percent of GDP. Uh, and you'd say, well, that could be natural. But Germany, uh, which is, has $48 an hour uh, average wages, uh, much higher than the United States, is, is far more, you could describe it, and I say this as a good thing, but a socialistic country than the United States, uh, is cleaning our clocks. Uh, and, and I'm not saying this is a competition, but Germany has 23% of its economy in, in manufacturing. It's because it values the productive sector of the economy, and the financial sector, generally speaking, works uh, with the productive sector of the economy to make it function much better. That's certainly not the case here, and I think uh, uh, public banking, public investment uh, could certainly spur on gains uh, in the uh, productive sector of the economy, which is key uh, to generating uh, family-supporting jobs uh, in California and around the country. Thank you very much. So I have a postscript to this, and that is... uh so $7 billion in, in uh, products and services to, to, to rebuild the Bay Bridge. Another 6 or $7 billion projected in, in terms of interest or debt servicing costs for that. The state of California, a few years ago, had an average daily balance of $17 billion in liquid assets. We could have easily created the $7 billion uh, to pay for the materials and services and essentially paid off that loan just with the tolls. That's called a self-liquidating loan. There's essentially no interest involved. There's no need to, to pay interest to an out-of-state or a financial organization when we can finance infrastructure ourselves. So that's what public banking is all about. You've been listening to the president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing, Scott Paul. We continue with Tim Canova. Tim Canova is Professor of Law and Public Finance at Nova Southeastern University in Florida. Today's show, The Bay Bridge Retrofit and the Federal Reserve. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. I think it's so important here to understand the forces that have undermined our democracy, undermined our economic prosperity, and are destroying the middle class and harming the poor so much. And, of course, the importance of understanding our own roles, our own responsibilities as citizens, as agents of change, not alone, but acting together. There's a recurring theme in American political history, um, the political struggle for control over the sovereign power of money, played out over the structure and governance of the central bank and the issuance of money. Jefferson, Jackson... Lincoln, both Roosevelt's, and Kennedy in his own way, were all avatars who understood the dangers of delegating such broad powers to a private cartel of central bankers. The late economist John Kenneth Galbraith 
once wrote that for the first 150 years of American political history, the history of the Republic, no issue other than slavery was more hotly contested than the politics of money. And we see it play out with the interpretation of the Constitution on the first bank of the United States with Jefferson squaring off against Hamilton. We see it with the second bank of the United States with what was then and probably still is, I'd say now more than ever, the most important veto in American history, Jackson's veto of the recharter of the second bank. We see it with the greenback that Lincoln used to help finance the Civil War. And then for decades after the Civil War, free silver, bimetallism, and then finally the Federal Reserve, which was founded exactly a century ago in 1913. William Grider, in his book, The Secrets of the Temple, talks about the creation of the Federal Reserve, the delegation to the Fed as being a turning point. So for 150 years, the first 150 years of this country's history, millions of Americans who weren't educated with PhDs in economics or finance, ordinary working folk, had very sophisticated views on money and banking. Again, no issue other than slavery turned elections as much as these issues. But it's when this power gets delegated to the Fed that the American people get told, this is for the experts. This is above your heads. Trust us, the experts will take care of it. And it really becomes an abdication of our responsibilities as democratic citizens. Now, I've got a Franklin Roosevelt quote here. The liberty of a democracy is not safe if the people tolerate the growth of private power to a point where it comes stronger than their democratic state itself. That, he says, is the essence of fascism when government is owned by a group. In that same speech, this was from a 1938 message to Congress on the concentration of economic power, Roosevelt said, the second truth is that the liberty of a democracy is not safe if its business system does not provide employment and produce and distribute goods in such a way as to sustain an acceptable standard of living. Now, for many years, I'd say it was a a lonely road to be criticizing the Federal Reserve, uh, certainly during the heyday of Alan Greenspan's chairmanship, but times have changed rather dramatically. So what I'd like to do in the short time today is to discuss the Federal Reserve. What is it? What is its structure and its functions? Talk about the Fed's independence and the constitutional issues surrounding its independence and what its independence really means, which is an agency that's been captured uh, and how that has contributed greatly to the economic crisis that we're in today. I'd also like to discuss some alternative paradigms that Ellen had referred to, essentially the Fed during the 1930s and 1940s, and how the Fed has responded to the present crisis and what the prospects for reform are. So first, um, the Fed itself, like I said, created a century ago, and um, its mandate, of course, is monetary policy and the setting of interest rates. It does that through open market transactions, the buying and selling traditionally of short-term treasury securities. When the Fed buys treasury securities, mostly from the big banks, uh, it is essentially injecting liquidity into the economy to drive down interest rates. 
And of course, the reverse when it uh, sells treasuries. It, it is draining liquidity from the system to raise interest rates. And this can have a huge impact on the economy, not just um, interest rates, but through interest rates to employment and inflation levels, of course, uh, gross domestic product. Um, its governing structure, many of us think of the Federal Reserve Board, which is a seven-member board um, of governors based in Washington, D.C. Each of those board members, each of those governors, are appointed by the President of the United States for 14-year terms. So right there, a 14-year term spans more than three presidential administrations. It's longer than any other federal officer in the federal government. And yet, it's not the Board of Governors acting alone that conducts monetary policy. It's the board acting with the 12 regional Federal Reserve Bank presidents. So the Fed is organized in 12 regional districts. Each district has a board of directors, and the board of directors, for instance, of the New York Federal Reserve Bank, is essentially a privately controlled board of directors, where the member commercial banks in that district that own the Federal Reserve are the ones selecting the boards of directors that essentially then select the, the president of, um, of the regional Federal Reserve Bank. And uh, those regional Federal Reserve Bank presidents meet in what's called the Federal Open Market Committee with the Board of Governors to conduct the open market operations. Now, there have been a number of constitutional challenges to this. First of all, under the Constitution, it says the President of the United States shall appoint federal officers who are then confirmed by the United States Senate. However, these 12 regional Federal Reserve Bank presidents are not appointed by the President of the United States, so there have been repeated constitutional challenges that made their way up in the federal court system, claiming it was a violation of the Appointments Clause. The other substantive uh, argument against the Federal Reserve System was what was known as the private non-delegation doctrine. When Congress delegates rulemaking authority, for instance, to the Environmental Protection Agency, at least it's delegating to a public agency, a public agency whose budget is controlled by Congress. There's a lot of congressional oversight. The President of the United States appoints the EPA director. But it's another story when it's delegating to a private cartel, which is what the Federal Reserve System is. I mentioned there have been these constitutional challenges on both of these substantive grounds, appointments clause and private non-delegation. Every single constitutional challenge to the Federal Reserve has been dismissed uh, just below this, the level of the U.S. Supreme Court by the D.C. Circuit, and they've been dismissed on narrow procedural grounds. The court refuses to rule on the substantive merits. So what is the outcome of a central bank that is owned and controlled by a private banking cartel? We all learn at some point that central bank independence is good. It's good because we're taking the power of money away from politicians who are going to be swayed by short-term considerations to get reelected, and we're handing it to a platonic guardian, you know, bankers who will look out for our interests, completely neutral and, you know, unbiased by any self-interest on their part. And it is... I'm trying to choose my words carefully... Let's just say that central bank independence is a euphemism for capture by Wall Street. It is an affront to the U.S. Constitution. It's an affront to the Constitution. It's an affront to principles of democratic governance. And it's a, an affront to the rule of law. And not surprisingly, 
As a captured central bank, the Federal Reserve has contributed greatly to the present crisis. There we have Alan Greenspan, the cover of Time magazine, The Committee to Save the World. Alan Greenspan, prior to becoming Federal Reserve chairman, had been a director at J.P. Morgan. And, of course, an Ayn Rand devotee. He did more than any other chairman to undermine the Glass-Steagall Act. Now, the Glass-Steagall Act has been mentioned a couple of times here. Uh, passed by Congress in 1933, it was part of Roosevelt's effort to break down that concentration of banking. Uh, prior to Glass-Steagall contributing to the 1929 stock market crash, you had commercial banks engaging in all kinds of securities underwriting and dealing. Glass-Steagall attempted to put a firewall, very effectively for decades, between commercial banking and the casino economy, between commercial banking and security underwriting and dealing. And this was undermined first by regulatory interpretations by Alan Greenspan and a compliant judiciary which essentially deferred to the administrative agency. You see Robert Rubin and Larry Summers in that picture, and Robert Rubin came to the Treasury Department and the, the Clinton administration from Goldman Sachs. But he jumped from Treasury to Citigroup. And as Treasury Secretary, he and then Larry Summers helped to negotiate the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act of 1999 that swept away the Glass-Steagall firewalls. And there we've got the signing of the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act by a Democratic president. For decades, this was the agenda of Wall Street. For decades, Republicans tried to pass legislation to abolish Glass-Steagall, and it took Bill Clinton and his triangulation. There you see him surrounded by bankers and other politicians signing away perhaps one of the most effective parts of the New Deal. Uh, by the way, I used that photograph. I bought the copyright for it. Uh, it was a New York Times front page uh, photograph uh, for a, an article I wrote for Dissent magazine called The Legacy of the Clinton Bubble. Um, other things the Federal Reserve did to undermine financial stability, again, Matt Taibbi mentioned it last night, they, they were very instrumental, especially Alan Greenspan, in undermining the regulation of the highly complex derivatives uh, market. Uh, the classic uh, example, of course, is Brooks Lee Bourne, who had headed the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, attempting to bring this shadow uh, financial system under regulatory control, and in 1998 being slapped down by the same cast of characters, Alan Greenspan, Robert Rubin, Larry Summers, and some others. And the unregulated derivatives market becomes a major part of the financial collapse of 2008. You recall credit default swaps, which have been likened to buying insurance on your neighbor's house. But it's not just you who gets to buy the insurance on your neighbor's house. Everyone in the world can buy insurance on your neighbor's house. So the credit default swap market is insurance on bonds, essentially. And the credit default swap market, at the time of the 2008 financial collapse, had a notional value of between 50 and $80 trillion, several times greater than the gross national product of the United States, greater than the entire world GDP. Um, as if that's not enough, the Fed was, at best, asleep at the wheel on the housing bubble. There are a lot of theories that maybe it was intentional, but at best, just asleep at the wheel. It didn't just push interest rates down to historic lows after the September 11th uh, terrorist attacks, but 
it combined those low interest rates with very lax lending standards. And Greenspan had been warned by a fellow Federal Reserve Governor, Lyle Gramlich, to bring, bring some regulation to lending standards. And both Greenspan and Bernanke just completely ignored lending standards. So suddenly, instead of 10 or 20 percent down, uh, down payment on a mortgage loan, uh, mortgage loans are being made with nothing down, with no incomes, no documentations. And of course, this is part of the securitization daisy chain where the risk gets uh, sold off to pension funds in Norway and elsewhere. Um, there has been much fallout from a captured central bank and much failure. Uh, we've seen inflation in a certain form, inflation of asset prices followed by asset price deflations. So this is the boom and bust of of financial bubbles. I want to um, turn our attention to an alternative paradigm. Oh, there's the Bush team. (laughs) And you'll see the Bush team doesn't differ that much from the Obama team. And there are a bunch of, you know, I don't know what it is, this pose of of prayerfulness. (laughs) Very devout. And Obama, Obama reappoints Ben Bernanke to head the Federal Reserve, and he reappoints the whole crew that brought financial deregulation. You know, I've been a lifelong Democrat until recently, and I've got to say, this is a party. Thank you. This is a party that has been captured by Wall Street interests as much as Republicans. And in 2008, the Obama campaign raised more money than the McCain campaign. So it is part of the challenge that we're facing. You're listening to Tim Canova. Tim Canova is professor of law and public finance at Nova Southeastern University in Florida. Today's show, the Bay Bridge retrofit and the Federal Reserve. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Okay, the alternative paradigm. Mariner Eccles, who chaired the Federal Reserve during the 1930s and 1940s. Roosevelt was elected in 32. Back then, the president didn't take office until March. And in February, a month before Roosevelt took office, the U.S. Senate conducted hearings on the financial crisis. And there were 150 bankers from around the country who all sang the same sermon. It's time for financial austerity, to cut budgets, to cut government spending at the federal level. And one, only one banker among them preached a different tune, and that was Mariner Eccles. Eccles understood that you had to put people back to work so that they could pay their bills, that they, could, that they don't get foreclosed upon. He was Keynesian before Keynes' general theory. And uh, Roosevelt promptly appointed him first as a deputy treasury secretary, and then as the chairman of the Federal Reserve. So throughout the 1930s, I'll talk about that in a moment, the Fed actually contributes quite a lot to the New Deal programs and recovery. But I do want to focus some of our attention on the 1940s Fed. Um, We're told that the deficit has never been larger. Government spending has never been larger than today. It's not true. Of course, World War II becomes the impotence, as Gar had mentioned earlier. You see... This is federal spending as a percentage of GDP, almost 45% of GDP during the 1940s. Today, this is not actually accurate. It goes up to about 25%, so to this line here, and it's now coming back down. And, of course, that spike of spending that goes up is partly the result of bailouts 
unemployment compensation, the automatic stabilizers. Well, with all that federal spending, you'd think that interest rates might go up. Here's the deficit as a percentage of GDP. Today, it peaked at about close to 10% of GDP. Uh, and it peaked there right after the financial collapse, 2009, 2010. It's now going down. It's now at around 6 or 7% of GDP. During the 1940s, 35% of GDP is, is where it peaked at, I believe. The national debt is a percentage of GDP. Today, it's actually up close to 80%. This is the national debt held by the public. Back in the 1940s, it peaked at 120% of GDP. So I don't want to focus too much right now on why the government was spending so much money, just the fact that the government was. It was spending and borrowing tremendously compared to any time since. What were the effects? Well, you've got the yield on three-month treasuries pegged at three-eighths of 1%, as low as today. So let's see, the federal government borrows three times as much and yet keeps interest rates even lower. How can that be? It's because the Federal Reserve, under Mariner Eccles, purchased government securities in any amount, at any price needed, to peg the interest rate low. Three-eighths of 1% on uh, 90-day T-bills, 2.5% on long-term treasuries. Well, with such low interest rates, you'd expect asset bubbles, a stock price inflation, housing price inflations. Well, not exactly, because the Fed was a good regulator. It raised margin requirements. It said anyone who wants to borrow to buy stock has to put a lot of collateral down. Anyone who wants to borrow money to buy automobiles, to buy housing, has to put collateral down. The Consumer Price Index. This is throughout the 1940s. Um, I'll say that during the peak war years, 1941 to 1945, consumer price inflation averaged less than 3% in the United States. Well, there were wage and price controls, and I'm told that's an infringement on the free market and all that. Of course, it's cracking down on cartels that have the ability to raise prices prematurely. I remember speaking at one conference and making this kind of pitch, and a former World Bank economist said, well, look, after World War II, after the wage and price controls were lifted, there was some inflation. And I said, okay, for 10 years, the federal government used these controls fought a world war on two oceans and won it in three and a half years, had the GI Bill of Rights during this decade in which it took 16 million returning veterans and said you got a free tuition-free college education anywhere in the world plus living stipends, and had a Marshall Plan that rebuilt democracies all over the world, all over war-torn Western Europe. Do you think that's a decent trade-off? And he scratched his head and he said, yeah, it sounds pretty good. That's why it's called the greatest generation. And real GDP growth, I should say, during the war, it averaged 15 to 20% inflation adjusted. We've never had a period of greater economic success in the United States than the 1940s when the Federal Reserve, as a practical matter, was not independent. I'll say that the empirical evidence that's usually thrown by economists, economists like to say that if a central bank is not independent, you're going to have consumer price inflation. And when you really bear down and look at the empirical evidence, they usually actually start those studies in the 1970s. They ignore the empirical evidence from the 40s, 50s, and 60s. And I've written about that in, in uh, Banking and Financial Services Policy Report. So, you know, 
you look at this history, and it certainly suggests that there should be some degree of humility uh, among professional economists. It's not found among professional economists. It's not found in the legal academy. Um, But back to today's Fed. How has the captured Fed responded to the economic crisis? I already suggested the fact that the Federal Reserve is captured contributed to the creation of this crisis. It deregulated all the financial markets and uh, fell asleep at the wheel, did nothing to stop a, a looming bubble. How did it respond to the crisis? Now, we know that um, there have been a couple of government accountability office audits that were mandated by the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform Act, thanks to Senator Bernie Sanders from Vermont and Congressman Ron Paul, which suggests, it suggests, when we're talking about reforming the Federal Reserve, that there are people on both sides of the spectrum, Americans who understand the need to break this agency capture. Those those GAO audits, the first audit showed that the Federal Reserve made more than $16 trillion in low-interest loans to the Wall Street banks in the aftermath of the financial crisis, which is why Elizabeth Warren is saying, hey, if they can offer such low-interest rates to Wall Street banks, how about to students? The next Fed audit, the next audit of the Fed by the Government Accountability Office showed pervasive conflicts of interest, where the banks receiving these low interest loans from the Fed were also the same bankers sitting on the regional Federal Reserve Bank boards. Jamie Dimon at J.P. Morgan was one of the more notorious ones. How else did the Fed respond to the crisis? Not just opening the floodgates of cheap credit to Wall Street. They also had their QE programs, quantitative easing programs, which, truth be told, it's been said, the QE programs do not add a penny to the deficit. The Fed creates money out of thin air, so to speak. QE1, the Fed purchased $1.25 trillion in mortgage-backed securities starting in 2008 and mostly 2009. Now, in March, I I think it was March or May of 2008, before the Lehman Brothers collapsed, before AIG went under, uh, before Fannie and Freddie got taken over. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal interviewing Paul Volcker, the former chairman of the Federal Reserve, who tried to prevent the undermining of Glass-Steagall during the 1980s. And Paul Volcker was concerned because back then, in early 2008, the Fed was making loans to Wall Street banks and allowing them to put up as collateral mortgage-backed securities that might have been worthless at the time. And Paul Volcker said, this is troubling. The Fed is going down a road where it might start looking at the nuclear option of actually purchasing these mortgage-backed securities. And if it does, it calls into question the neutrality and independence of the Federal Reserve for favoring some segments of the market over others. And, you know, the Fed under... Timothy Geithner, who headed the the New York Federal Reserve Bank, and Ben Bernanke, the chairman of the board, blew by that road sign. It went nuclear. It purchases over a trillion dollars of mortgage-backed securities, and there's been no angst about its independence from anyone else on Wall Street. It's QE2 program. The Fed purchases over $600 billion of treasury securities to try to push down short-term treasuries when it realizes that low short-term interest rates might not translate into low mortgage rates, it has its operation twist 
where it starts trying to shift the portfolio of its holdings from short-term treasuries to long-term treasuries. It opens up swap lines for Europe, European banks, and then we're now in the era of QE3. And I'll tell you this, um, while QE1 and QE2 were going on, I was going around the country saying, before the Fed has a QE3 for, for, for Wall Street, it should have a QE3 for Main Street. And it hasn't. QE3 is now the Federal Reserve purchasing $85 billion of bonds each and every month for as far into the future as the eye can see, because this is supposed to go on until the unemployment rate is down at 6.5%, and who knows when that's going to happen. So $85 billion a month, you're talking about a trillion dollars a year. Roughly half in treasuries and half in mortgage-backed securities. So when you see housing prices taking off, you got to wonder, is the Fed blowing more bubbles? So the verdict. Yes, the Fed has so far apparently prevented a complete meltdown. And I say so far because it it could be blowing more bubbles. But it's also prevented any far-reaching reforms, any house cleanings. It's propped up this corrupt financial system. It is essentially given a get-out-of-free-jail pass to these big banks by propping them up. And it has been ineffective economic policy. Mariner Eccles, during the 1930s, said when you're in a depression, when you've got price deflation or, you know, wages are falling, when you've got, essentially, let's call it for what it is. We are right now in a jobs depression. You've got mass unemployment, mass long-term unemployment, upside-down consumers, the same conditions in the 1930s. When you got that going on, Eccles said monetary policy is like pushing on a string. You can push interest rates down to zero, but you can't make people borrow. And the only thing to get out of that kind of a depression, according to Eccles, was fiscal policy, was the government having jobs programs and putting people to work. And that, amen. Amen. You, you talk about what worked in the 1930s, what put Ronald Reagan's father and Ronald Reagan's brother to work during the Great Depression, and it was the Works Projects Administration. And you got a million young men who were in the Civilian Conservation Corps clearing fire lines. Today, we, we outsource that to the timber companies, and each year we've got bigger and bigger forest fires. Uh, well, okay, let's move on. The prospects for Federal Reserve reform. Um, Senator Bernie Sanders put together, together an advisory committee. I was fortunate to be on it, and it was a very interesting experience. Bernie Sanders had, he had Stiglitz and Jeffrey Sachs and Robert Reich on it. Uh, before I talk about the Sanders Advisory Committee and the kind of reforms, I do want to say a word about the prospects for reform when you do have a two-party corporate-owned duopoly. Um, it seems to me that nothing is going to change in this country under the Republicans or the Democrats. I'm sorry to say it as a lifelong Democrat. To me, it suggests the need for a third party united by core principles. A second party. That's a, we've got one party with a Democratic and Republican wing. Yeah, absolutely. But a new party united by core principles 
where there's no compromise on the core principles. And if you adhere to the core principles, it survives the unlikely, unfortunate demise of any one leader. And we've seen this throughout American history. The populist and greenback parties in the 19th century, the progressives at the turn of the 20th century, much like today's Tea Party. They never took power, but they pushed the agenda by pushing one of the parties in a certain direction. Or, you know, there's always the example of Abraham Lincoln's Republican Party, a third party movement that came out of nowhere, came out of nowhere and took power. And is this possible? I'm always told that forget third party politics, it can't happen. Well, who knows? In the age of the internet and in the age of Occupy Wall Street, all I know is if things are going to change, there's going to have to be this kind of a movement. Last night, Brigitte Johns Dotier from Iceland said, if we had the power to change things, what would we do? What is the world that we want? I wrote a piece for the American Prospect called The Federal Reserve That We Need, and I suggested it's much like the 1940s Federal Reserve that we had. So Bernie Sanders asked his advisory committee two questions um, dealing with the Fed. How can it, its governance be reformed? And secondly, should the Fed's mandate be reformed? Should it be given any different authority to deal with the present economic crisis? The governance reforms, um, the advice that Sanders got was reflected in a bill that he introduced. So far, it's gone nowhere. It hasn't gotten out of committee. Essentially, to remove the Federal Reserve Bank presidents from the Federal Open Market Committee. Um, no doubt, the membership on all these boards should be diverse, whether it's the Board of Governors or any Federal Reserve Board. This builds on the work of the institutional economists during the 1930s, John Commons, Leon Kaiserling, one of the first uh, chairs of the Council of Economic um, Advisors, who both talked about having a Federal Reserve that had a multiplicity of interests, labor, debtors, that wasn't just stacked with bankers, that would become a marketplace for ideas and a forum for countervailing power, in the words of John Kenneth Galbraith. So, in short, reforming the Fed means nationalizing the Fed. Gar talked last night about the need to be nationalizing banks or to speak about it. And reforming the Fed's mandate and authority, um, I mentioned a QE for Main Street. What would that look like? It would look like the Fed helping to fund state infrastructure banks. We, we heard yesterday from Scott Paul from the Alliance for American Manufacturing about our infrastructure deficit. Um, again, these kinds of QE programs don't have to add a penny to the deficit. They put people to work. By putting people to work, you're employing taxpayers. You're reducing deficits. A uh, couple of conservative economists, Martin Feldstein and Vernon Smith, talked about the Fed supporting Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to help modify mortgages. Student debt forgiveness or relief, the Fed could do that. And support for state and local government budgets. Um, Ellen had mentioned um, the history of the 1930s. I'll just say briefly, the Reconstruction Finance Corporation and the Fed both helped finance these New Deal jobs programs. The Fed made loans directly to non-financial businesses in the 1930s, about $280 million. Uh, as a percentage of GDP, that would be like Fed loans of about $30 billion in today's terms. The Reconstruction Finance Corporation, created by Herbert Hoover in 1932, when Roosevelt was running for president against Hoover, Roosevelt said the Reconstruction Finance Corporation was a trickle-down approach because it was helping to support banks and insurance companies and not Main Street. As president, Roosevelt used the Reconstruction Finance Corporation for a bottom-up recovery, which Rob Call talked about yesterday. 
Uh, Roosevelt's Reconstruction Finance Corporation helped finance infrastructure, public works, mortgage relief for homeowners, and even local school teacher salaries. It made over $50 billion of grants and loans over a 25-year period. In today's dollars, that would be over $500 billion. Again, not adding a penny to the deficit, putting people to work, and reducing deficits. I'll leave with this thought that what we see is an epic struggle that has been reawakened in our time. It's an epic struggle that goes back to the founding of this country, to Thomas Jefferson and Andrew Jackson, to both Teddy Roosevelt and Franklin Roosevelt. And perhaps reform is now the moderate position. You've got on one side what's considered an extreme view to end the Fed completely. And you've got, and you've got, and I'm sympathetic to ending the Fed the way it is now. Okay, but the status quo is unacceptable. It is a corrupt and failed status quo. So um, Al Smith Smith had once said the only cures for the failures of democracy is more democracy. Some speakers yesterday alluded to the fact that maybe we're approaching a tipping point. And uh, the late Tony Judd, a great historian, said that one of the great myths in history is that change comes slowly. It might look slow as it's unfolding. But he said, change is more like ice freezing, not like ice melting. When it comes, it comes suddenly. I would suggest we are approaching a tipping point, that we are at the vanguard of change, that everyone in this room is part of that change, that democracy is in an hour of great need right now. And it's important for all of us to step forward, to do our part, to be foot soldiers in this change. As free human beings, we share a common destiny, a transcendent destiny, in the words of Emerson. Not pinched in a corner, not fleeing before a revolution, but benefactors and redeemers. We have to see ourselves as benefactors for future generations fighting for democracy. We have to see ourselves as redeemers of our broken democracy, so that once again, this great land will have a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. We must and we will. Thank you. You've been listening to Tim Canova. Today's show has been The Bay Bridge Retrofit and the Federal Reserve. Tim Canova is Professor of Law and Public Finance at Nova Southeastern University in Florida. The presentations on the Bay Bridge Retrofit with Scott Paul and the Federal Reserve with Tim Canova were part of the larger Public Banking Institute's Public Banking 2013. Visit www.publicbankinginstitute.org. That's publicbankinginstitute.org. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Visit our website at gunsandbutter.org. Then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what?
on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look with this side yourself for peace. Give thanks, live life, and release. You dig me? You got me?